Today's show is brought to you by SoFi. Imagine a world where employers can contribute to student loans, sort of like a 401k match. Luckily, that world is now a reality. Learn more at sofi.com slash at work. This show is supported by Willis Towers Watson. They decode cybersecurity by looking at risk across your company's people, capital, and technology. Willis Towers Watson assesses your vulnerabilities, protecting you with the best-in-class solutions and helping you recover quickly from future attacks. Details at willistowerswatson.com slash recode. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person who backseat drives at a self-driving car, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Boris Softman, the CEO and co-founder of Anki. Boris holds a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon and previously worked at Nito Robotics. Anki brings robotics and artificial intelligence into the home through products like the robot cars Anki Drive and Cosmo, a robot companion you control from your smartphone. Boris, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you, Kara. You have my favorite name of all time, Boris. I just don't know why I like it so much. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to talk about a lot of things. We're talking about robotics, AI, and things like that. But let's talk about your background. I like to – a lot of entrepreneurs listen in here when we talk to entrepreneurs about what how they got started. So give me your, your background because you obviously have studied uh, robotics for many years and sort of your, your journey. Why don't we go into that first? Yeah, absolutely. So I started, actually ran into robotics while I was an undergrad. I went to Carnegie Mellon for undergrad as well, mm-hmm. studied computer science. Were you interested as a kid, robotics? I was interested in uh, computer science and engineering in general, but I didn't even know what robotics was. Mm-hmm. Um, the nice thing about uh, ending up at Carnegie Mellon is that there's so much robotics, you can't help but like trip right. over a robot. Well, we know about that yeah. Uber and stuff. And so my, uh, in the middle of grad school, I really got excited about this idea of uh, intelligence for physical objects and not just software mm-hmm. inside of a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, kind of led me to do some research with uh, some professors. In was the there department. a reason? Yeah. Was it like Star Wars or something? Or did you? That, you know what? I think it was more, um, uh, yeah, science fiction in general. I think, uh, you know, you see all of these examples of uh, incredible intelligence and, and physical things that mm-hmm. uh, that have stayed science fiction for far longer than other areas of sure. technology have evolved. And, right. uh, and there's also something that's much easier to connect with when you see the output of your work being something physical, doing right. what it's supposed to do versus right. just software or some output. But it has been underwhelming robots in the home compared to the amount of stuff in science fiction. Exactly right. And I think that was one of the realizations that especially, um, you know, going from undergrad and then going into grad school, you see these incredible technologies, but they're all uh, focused on government applications, defense, space, uh, pure research, industrial applications. There's almost nothing that made it into consumer products right, um, right. That, uh, of, of substance. Right, except in Hollywood movies. So you went to Carnegie Mellon, you studied this, and what was your goal? Where was robotics at that point? So especially back then, it was still very much locked in uh, kind of non-consumer applications. Right, and, so and a very factory or, factories or, or a bomb or research, sniffer or um, like bomb that. sniffers, that's right. Or just, you know, pure research where there's advances in machine learning and computer vision, but not, not really tangible actual applications. And so my my, my passion and my, my focus on my PhD at that point was autonomous driving. And mm-hmm. so my, my Which research... Which is, let's just back up. Carnegie Mellon's famous for that. Uber right. hired all, everyone there and has having trouble with it, yeah. obviously. A lot of the Google team was the previous right. kind of Grand Challenge and Urban Challenge teams from right. there. Right, right. So, so why was that your interest? What was you just... 
You know, it's uh, it's one of the best examples when you have something that's very familiar that can be completely re reinvented uh, with these technologies, cars. Mm -hmm. And it ties together elements of uh, perception, machine learning, path planning, like all these different uh, different elements. Mm -hmm. um, you, you see these uh, uh, th these vehicles do something intelligent. It's just like that is science fiction. That is right. the, the thing that like right, you right. grew up kind of dreaming of. Um, right. So and that's one of the holy grails. What did you build What were you built? What did you work yeah, on? So my particular project was an off-road version of autonomous driving where I can imagine you have this like gigantic robot. Like it was like a $600,000 robot. You pop it down into a forest. You give it a waypoint like 10 kilometers away and it's got to figure out how to get there. And mm -hmm. so you're trying to figure out like what type of vegetation can you drive over? What's safe? What's not safe? How do you classify between rocks and branches and things that might damage your sensor pod. And so there was, it was a kind of a conduit for a lot of research uh, across perception, uh, machine learning, path planning, uh, interfaces mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, to training these sort of systems. Um, and actually became a, a precursor and a training ground for a lot of, uh, for a lot of people that ended up going into other areas of autonomous driving. Sure. So you, you study here and then you have your PhD from, you stayed there in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And what did you hope to do? Because you, you would go to the military or... Yeah, and this is an interesting thing is that there's a lot all this controversy about like kind of the, the military funding and robotics, but it was one of the best examples of where this funding from uh, you know DARPA or, yeah, or Navy and whatnot. Yeah, the internet. It, I'm not, yeah, it I yanked, don't have a problem with Yeah, and it was, it was pretty fantastic because it, uh, it yanked all these technologies to a point for the first time where it became plausible that there were, you know, commercial applications. And so, you know, my project, you know, we were focused on, uh, you know, my personal f focus was on using machine learning techniques to allow these vehicles to self-train themselves and learn and right. Their performance over right. time. Other people were working on path planning. Other people were working on other areas, and then all of the that technology went into projects for construction through Caterpillar, through mm -hmm. Urban Challenge, and so forth. And so, um, very soon after that, um, there was kind of this spark from the uh, Grand Challenge, where um, explain the Grand Challenge for people. Yeah, know. so the Grand Challenge is uh, uh, one of the coolest projects that DARPA ever sponsored. Mm -hmm. So basically, it was a race of autonomous vehicles uh, through a desert. Uh, with completely no human involvement, um, mm -hmm. other than the training and the right. um, uh, you know kind of programming, programming. In front. So there was like a 140 mile course through the desert. It was uh, somewhat known track, but you still had to like avoid all the obstacles along the way. And it was a race to get to the finish line uh, and be the first one to get there. Right. And a lot so, of the robotics challenges are like that. You do this many tasks, or you do that's right. right. And so what DARPA did was uh, they uh, they put a two million dollar prize on it. Uh, I believe it was two million dollars at the time. But what happened was that is that that became the catalyst for a huge amount of funding from uh, Intel, Caterpillar, private donations, uh, people's pet projects, and all these different things, and right. probably led to like hundreds of millions of dollars of total investment by you know, 50 something teams uh, to actually, uh, um, you know, push, try to like get, get the finish line on it. And I, I distinctly remembered, I mean, this was like, uh, you know, 2000, uh, you know, kind of mid 2000, uh, 2005, 2006, you know, the kind of time period throughout all these races, where it was the first of three. Um, and what happened was that, you know, at that point, everybody thought that, um, I mean, this is like one of the holy grails of robotics, we want to push this forward at some point in the future, this is going to be th this great thing. And a lot of our kind of our friends ended up, you know, kind of working on this, but nobody thought how quickly it would evolve from that point. And so what happened was that, the, you know, even driving without human involvement with no moving obstacles and a known course, that was a state-of-the-art challenging 
problem at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were, you know, incredibly talented people at Stanford team, the Carnegie Mellon team, other teams. Um, and the first year, I think uh, Carnegie Mellon got the furthest in the race, and they got seven and a half miles in before the car flipped over and busted all the really expensive right. sensors that was on the top. Right, and, right. Uh, so they couldn't do it. Yeah. Right, exactly. So and we moved heavily. Quickly. Yeah, moved heavily. And then, you know, just the, just the next year, there were four different vehicles that actually finished the entire race. So mm-hmm. two, two from Carnegie Mellon, and then Stanford won it, and then there was another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and two years after that, there was an urban challenge equivalent where now all of a sudden the, the challenge was not just a known environment, but now you have moving obstacles in a suburban environment. With, right, uh, which is really uh, the point. It, which is exactly. Now you're actually starting to get to a point where you don't have to squint too hard to see how the results of that could actually lead to something oh, really absolutely. meaningful. Oh, absolutely, Because the funny thing is, like, back in 2005, all these professors that were trying to get f- funding for this, I mean, you couldn't even get any uh, – you could barely get any Less attention from the, from the car companies. And right. GM funded a little bit, Ford funded a little bit, and, yeah. I mean, they were kind of into it, but not – like, it would be unheard of for one of them to say, you know what, we're going to put – Fifty million dollars behind this project, right, right? Right. They were electric cars, is where they were at. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. They were yeah, program the electric, but I mean, it was yeah. just it felt like still too too far away. And right. so with the urban challenge, you had um, cars uh, obeying traffic lights, parking themselves, avoiding mm-hmm. moving obstacles. They actually had like stunt drivers driving cars that were like reinforced, to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so nobody would get hurt. And uh, um, and it was starting to move pretty quickly. So we're going to talk about where that's going soon. But so you then moved on to where? What was the? Yeah, and so this was in some. So sense why didn't what, you start a self-driving car company? Thing, well, like everybody else. At that point, th- there wasn't. you couldn't. Uh, you, right. you just couldn't. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, uh, you know, you got to give Google a huge amount of credit because coming out of those challenges, mm-hmm. even as compelling as that was, it sounds uh, obvious in hindsight, but it wasn't obvious at all that this was, uh, you know, within a reasonable uh, amount of time of, of being, mm-hmm. you know, usable or commercializable. And even now there's a lot of challenges remaining. They basically took uh, a lot of the best people from the Chris, Mellon yeah. team and Stanford team and, and, and other places. Chris Sermson, so he was on my thesis committee. And uh, I mean, in fact, my entire thesis committee was, is scattered between, yeah, <laughs> Google, Uber teams that, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of other startup companies. And so, you know, at that point, you couldn't start it. Well, I think it would be incredibly difficult to raise money of the sort of, of, of volume you would need to actually put a dent in this problem. And so you mm-hmm. needed somebody like Google that was uh, that had uh, enough creativity and foresight and resources to put resources into this problem right. and, crazy. and be hand- and a little bit crazy, right? And be hands off enough to really start making progress. And then you know it, it kind of clipped this like point where all of a sudden uh, everybody started getting interested because you could see exactly where where it was uh, going. Was but but you didn't weren't able to do that. So. No, and in some sense so that was wh- kind of a explain your trajectory then. Yeah, I think if uh, uh, if we didn't end up going the um, uh, the route, I very likely uh, would have ended up working with Chris. And some of those folks, because uh, mm-hmm. um, that was always kind of a passion. What I ended up doing um, with two friends that became my co-founders uh, at Anki, starting around 2008 when we were right in the middle of grad school, was starting to work on the foundations of what became the company, where what we wanted to do was to take a lot of these technologies that we got really excited about um, and actually apply them uh, to consumer applications to of robotics. And for us, uh, it was never meant to be a toy company or even an entertainment mm-hmm. company. It was uh, It's a robotics and AI company. Uh, and yeah, that's not was a big a, seller at, at the Toys R Us, but go ahead. Yeah, it's a well, and it's, this is the thing. I mean, there's one thing for Toys R Us, but in, uh, for us from the very beginning, these are really great proving grounds for a lot of these technologies in a place where you can have a huge amount of impact sure. um, very quickly, especially w- looking at the category where there hasn't been much innovation at all in physical entertainment, like the mm-hmm. same toys that kids today grew up with 30, 40 years ago, largely the same sort of landscape. Yeah, they are. Um, and so that became an opportunity where uh, for a very reasonable amount of capital, you could truly disrupt that category and reinvent the sort of experience 
experiences and interactivity you could have. And in the process, it becomes almost a Trojan horse for a lot of the technologies that uh, are under the hood that carry over into spaces that become Bigger. more functional outside of entertainment. So you so you raise money. Exp- Tell me. Yep. So we uh, at first we were moonlighting and avoiding our thesis and mm-hmm. just working on the side back in uh, Carnegie Mellon. Uh, you have a lot of uh, pain tolerance as a grad student to mm-hmm. um, uh, just uh, you know work on the mm-hmm. side and these sort of things. Uh, raised some seed money. Ended up moving out to uh, uh, to San Francisco in 2011. And uh, since then we've raised uh, a number of rounds of funding. Um, Andreessen Horowitz was our first round back mm-hmm. in uh, the beginning of 2012. How much have you raised? Uh, so we've raised a little bit over 200 million at this point. Now, what are you doing with that money? So uh, a lot of things. Um, early on, uh, so our very first round was um, uh, was Andreessen Horowitz. So we mm-hmm. met um, Mark and Ben and the group uh, mm-hmm. back in the day. And uh, even from that point, it was clear that this company was never about a, uh, a battle racing game or, a, right. you know, we already had the vision for the next product even back in 2011. And we had a, a kind of the early form of a path on what could take it from some of these early implication, uh, applications into something beyond where it was a right, more so But the early concept. applications yeah. was battle racing. Yeah, it was a it was a toy. It was a um, uh, but one that was kind of blurring the lines with video games. But in a lot of ways, it was a way to more broadly start to use software to redefine physical entertainment experiences. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so uh, w- it was almost like a game engine for physical play where uh, these cars they're robots. They have 50 megahertz computers inside of them. Mm-hmm. They sense the environment 500 times a second. All these sort of things are happening. In where, these small cars. Uh, they're small. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you use uh, mobile devices to control them. But what's happening is that the game knows everything that's happening in real time. And mm-hmm. so there's a video game inside of the mobile device that's synchronized to the physical world, which, which right. lets you do things like augment the experience with weapons, special abilities. The cars you don't control are AI-controlled cars. They'll compete against you. And there's mm-hmm. commanders that'll be driving them and trash talk against you. And so mm-hmm. it brings an experience to life that you would only usually see in, in a, a video in game. video game, right. So, so you're trying to combine hardware and... and that's right. And it, it, it turns it into an 80% software problem because mm-hmm. the moment you have the platform where you know what's happening, uh, you turn it into a software problem. And that's the, uh, the way to look at robotics more broadly is that it's... Uh, like the extension of computer science into the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, the moment you can know what's going on around you and have some way to interface with it, you turn it into a software problem where you can start building more and more intelligence into products. But initially, the, as you say, the Trojan horse was a game. That's right. Initially, it was a game, and it was a way to um, work on an application that could be high impact where the quality bar wasn't so high that we take eight years to ship something. Right. Like an autonomous car has to be almost 100% reliable. Right. If one of our cars goes off a track, it's okay. There's not gigantic regulatory challenges mm-hmm. and headaches to overcome. And so we could release this product and use that as a uh, as a proving ground and in the process uh, make uh, some of the most successful toy and game products, mm-hmm. but use that as a stepping stone. And they're also constantly learning. That's right. And Which so, I think it, people don't get around cars. One of the things I was, they were talking about, what do we need self-driving cars? What do we need this? It's so hard. I'm like, because if one car gets in an accident, a million cars learn. That's and a, one person gets in an accident, that's it. That's where it goes. It's funny you say this. Like one of the hardest things about autonomous driving, I mean, a lot of these teams, and uh, when you, you talk to them, they have the biggest challenge with is that you can get to 95% solution very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that could be a solution that you have to restart from scratch to get to the rest 5%. And one mm-hmm. of the hardest problems is that you can train and iterate on things where you have full control of the environment, but something uh, really spontaneous, like a car swerving in front of you in a really mm-hmm. aggressive way, uh, it's hard to get examples of that mm-hmm. and to to to, see, to, mm-hmm. to get experience with those sort of situations, right. and those end up being that like 
a hundredth of a percent situation ends up being one of the most difficult cases for right, and that's all you need is one. It's always fascinates me about what you know this all this even we do it, but I try not to do it as much as uh, these cars turning over. I'm like cars turn over every day. Like (laughs) there's a psychological like yeah, uh, computers shouldn't. That's right. Shouldn't. And then people will die because of autonomous cars. It's just mm-hmm. an inevitable, but the numbers will be so vastly smaller proportional yeah. to usage. That's something that like it, psychologically people, uh, people and the regulatory environment have to kind of get around. Yeah, it. So we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. But to create Anki, and what are you doing now with it? And then so we're gonna, the next section we're going to talk about. So we launched Anki uh, uh, Drive in 2013, and it was a really unique partnership with mm-hmm. Apple where from the beginning we were very conscious that we didn't want this to feel like just just a toy. And, right, like, right. You know, it was a, right. and so we had the fortune of launching in a really unique way with um, uh, the WWDC with Tim Cook mm-hmm. during his uh, – uh, d- oh, it, uh, That was a stressful time. It was, uh, <laughs> was in the Apple Dungeon. At least it wasn't <laughs> Steve Jobs. Then you'd have to like – It would have been tougher. Uh, that would have been even tougher. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, they were wonderful to us. And so we got to launch with Apple and then uh, continued to branch out. We had a new generation of uh, called Overdrive that came out in 2015. Mm-hmm. You know, it was done super well. And uh, last fall, we launched our next product, which um, actually starts to point much more to the direction that we want to take the company. Which, which is called – we're going to talk uh, about that and we'll get into the next section. It's called Cosmo. Okay. Um, and so uh, he's a physical little robot, a uh, mm-hmm. little character. And the goal was to make him feel like he's truly alive, like, mm-hmm. to make a character with a level of personality and emotional depth that you would never see outside of a screen. So literally think of like your favorite, most beautiful characters in Pixar movies or DreamWorks movies where mm-hmm. you have this like richness on the emotional front. We wanted to make that possible in the real world. Uh, and not just to have a level of emotional depth that was beyond anything that was there before, but to couple it with robotics and AI right. to where um, all those emotions could be uh, contextually relevant to what was going on and to have a character that actually interacts with you, understands what's right. happening around and makes well, eye contact. I, I do want to talk about that a lot. I don't know why we need to make sweet robots, but I want to talk about why they have to be sweet. I like malevolent robots. But before we get <laughs> to that, uh, we're here with Boris Softman from Anki, which is a robotics company. I think I'll call it a robotics, not just a toy company. This podcast is brought to you by SoFi. Think of standard employee benefits like 401k contributions, standing desks, and catered lunches, if you're really lucky. Those are all great, but if you want to seriously invest in yourself, why not ask your employer to check out student loan contributions and refinancing from SoFi? You can lower your interest and get your employer's help in paying down your student debt so you can start planning your financial future sooner. Visit SoFi.com slash at work to learn more. Terms and conditions apply. Loans originated by SoFi Lending Corp. and not available in all states. Visit SoFi.com slash legal for more information. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Kara, I talked to a celebrity this week. Want to guess? You can't guess because we're not talking live. I've pre-recorded this segment. I talked to Michael McKean, one of the great actors. He's appearing in Better Call Saul right now. He's Bob Odenkirk's brother in that. He's a great slash horrible character in that one. Some of you know him as David St. Hubbins from Spinal Tap. We talked about both of those roles, lots of other cool stuff he does, what acting is like on stage in 2017. It is a good episode. It's free. It's available at Recode Media. Thanks, Kara. You can find Recode Media on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm here with Boris Softman of Anki, uh, a robotics company which started off by selling cars, competing race cars, essentially, for kids uh, or adults who are like kids. Um, but now you've moved on to other areas. And you were talking about just before this, this new product called Cosmo, which is an adorable robot, which yes. people in Silicon Valley like to create adorable robots. <laughs> What's with that? <laughs> 
what's, look, your, what's the point? You said it's pointing in a new direction. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, and so this, uh, you know, the idea is to bring this little character to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when you combine the emotional uh, aspects with the kind of AI and the kind of understanding to allow him to evolve and understand his environment, you get into kind of a very magical experience that you can't replicate on a screen. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that's special about this is it took us a while to think about the right way to approach this problem because it's very hard technically, but it's even harder in some ways creatively. And what we realized is that we had to think of a character coming to life like this as if it was a character from a film. Mm-hmm. And so we literally uh, have a animation studio within a robotics company with people from backgrounds like Pixar, DreamWorks, and other places mm-hmm. where we're animating a physical character exa- using very, very similar techniques and processes that you would see in an animated film. So explain, what does that result in? So what, that, what that results in is a uh, this little robot character, Cosmo. Um, how big is it? Uh, it's about palm size. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he'll fit in your hand um, and um, you know has a, a facial display for his kind of eyes and emotions. He has a speaker inside his head, all mm-hmm. sorts of sensors and mm-hmm. uh, in order to interact with his environment. Um, but the biggest uh, kind of his brain is inside of a mobile device that in effect does computer vision and all these different sure. things to allow him to interact. And so what we're, what we're doing is um, uh, we're using a, a program called Maya, which is often used for rendering digital characters. Mm-hmm. It's actually used by a lot of movie studios to make their animated films. Mm-hmm. And so what you would do is rig up a character with capabilities and, and map it to what you wanted to do. We did the exact same thing with Cosmo to match his cap- physical capabilities, except the output is spliced to be his physical motion and not just a rendered version. Sure. And so now you have all these incredibly rich animations to be able to show his emotional expressions from happy, sad, surprised, bored, uh, Mm -hmm. angry, curious, um, all these different spectrums of emotions. And then that's when you tie it into the game design and the AI and robotics side, where you, if you can imagine this like big black box of an emotional and behavioral engine, it takes the inputs from the world and the stimuli mm-hmm. uh, in context of what's happening and maps that to the right emotions at the right times. Right. So if he's like, if he loses a game, he gets grumpy and slams his like right. you know, block and goes and sulks in the corner. Mm-hmm. Or if you pick him up and put him on his head, he gets frustrated and like kind of flips over. If he sees an edge of a table, he gets scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are just examples. Um, but you tie these in in the right way, it feels like he's alive. So he sees you for the first time. He remembers all the people he's seen, and he's super happy to see you. And mm-hmm. now he like really wants to so, play. W- yeah, let me get to it because uh, I'm fascinated with roboticists. Why do they have to be like that? It's Why hum- do they have to be like humans? Like Because humans do humans pretty well. Well, he, uh, he's emotionally like a, uh, trying Why? to approach humans because there's an emotional connection that you can form with machines you wouldn't have otherwise. I'll actually mm-hmm. tell you an interesting example. So if you – all of this uh, kind of uh, alluding to what, what, what we'll chat about, all of this leads to a broader platform that allows robots to function in the home with capability that is actually welcomed. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look back to some of the research happening at Carnegie Mellon and other places, you have these incredible – MIT. Uh-huh. MIT everywhere. Like, yeah. uh, so um, amazing research. Right? So um, you know, there's Intel Labs. There's all these places that are doing gigantic robotic arms for um, operating in a kitchen or in, sure. in, in the home. So you have these like huge arms that unload dishwashers and do all these really complicated tasks, but they're big, they're menacing, they look like they're they, they need to be perfect. Yeah. And so you could have something that does the most complicated task 48 out of 50 times. And what you do is you remember the two, two times that, he, that it failed because mm-hmm. you think it should be perfect. And you're like, why did the robot fail? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what happens when you have zero personality. When you have something that has character, it naturally makes you more forgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even in the case of entertainment here, if Cosmo's trying to do something with kind of his environment and he fails, the fact that he failed but knows it and he acts disappointed in himself, it makes it more endearing and you actually become more forgiving of I it see. and even more attached. It's why when you talk to... Uh, uh, 
like an Alexa, for example, mm-hmm. um, even when uh, the Alexa doesn't know the answer, oftentimes uh, the fact that you know you think of, the, of Alexa as the beginnings of a character makes you more forgiving. You sort of do. Yeah, you yeah. do. You absolutely do. I think you feel more like it's an assistant or you start to get angry at it. Like That's Siri, right. I'm always angry. Siri yeah, just... Because the closer it comes to a, a machine, right. uh, you're unforgiving and you mm-hmm. want it to be perfect. And so in a lot of ways, what Cosmo is is the beginnings of an interface with characters where you have a character and personality driven uh, little being that's going to evolve a huge amount over the through both software and but, hardware. But I think one of the reasons we want, I want to get later into the idea, there's so many shows out right now with humans, like cyborgs of some, mm-hmm. robots and robot yeah. rights. I want to get to that idea, whether we should tax robots and how they're going to hurt the U.S. economy. Yeah. But, but when you think about where robot development is going, ultimately, as nice as they might be, and they might be companion robots and all kinds of things, they got to be helpful. So what's the they point? They have to be helpful. Uh, well, in, uh, if not inter- just hire a grumpy human being who does a bad job. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, what's the point? Yeah, and in the end, robotics is about function. Um, mm-hmm. uh, entertainment and companionship is a function, uh, and it's a good proving ground to develop some of these technologies because in the course of entertainment, it can be more forgiving. But yes, in the end, uh, there's a need for function, and that's basically where robotics is broken down mm-hmm. in terms of making it into mass market consumer form because right. either the price point doesn't make sense or the capability doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's all these things that have to work. Uh, and one of the neighbors of, of more modern forms of robotics uh, at the sort of price points that we're at is that the smart... How much is a Cosmo? So Cosmo is $179. So it's cheap. No, it's no, no. cheap. And, and from a platform standpoint, it's pretty uh, uh, really capable compared to anything that mm-hmm. you would typically have access to at those Why would points. I buy it? Your robot. For, what, was the, what would be the reason? Just for amusement? Uh, right now, it's entertainment. So mm-hmm. uh, kids are certainly a big audience, although 40% of our users are adults across both products. So I think mm-hmm. like just... Uh, augmenting the capability widens the, the demographic mm-hmm. on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, it's entertainment. It's a, uh, it's a character that uh, um, uh, has an appealing emotional breadth. You can play games with them. And then over time, this actually kind of evolves on the software side and gets more and more capable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, it's also a great platform where we're, we're using it. Uh, the SDK is so robust, it's being used in universities for education uh, and researchers for all, in all sorts of purposes, uh, as mm-hmm. well as some work that we're doing down the road for, um, uh, for STEM. But right now it's entertainment. What, right now it's what entertainment. Should, but to me, function is really like do yes. stuff. Yeah, and uh, and this is one of the places where um, function and practicality kind of need to cross. Um, and one of the mistakes that the robotics industry uh, traditionally has made is that they aim for a 15-year goal mm-hmm. and they drill down this cave thinking they can pop out the other side and just have that magical solution like Rosie from the Jetsons. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't work that way because especially... That was a good robot. It was a good robot. Uh, yeah. Not there yet, though. And, and, no. and, and part of it is... Just, so is the outfit. The, <laughs> the outfit was the best part. Anyway, it was. What was an outfit doing on a robot? It's humanized. Do you remember what was the one where they had the Will Robinson um, warning? Warning, Will Robinson. With that that robot. Oh, gosh, I forgot the name of it. Yeah. What show was that? Uh, Robbie, Lost in Space. Lost in Space. Lost in Space, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I have my geek here, right here. That was a a weird looking robot, also. That was a strange robot. Anyway, so where does it revolve to then? Because entertainment, I don't think, is enough at all. I mean, it can be, but. No, but it's a st- uh, but it's a really great starting point um, right. because you can truly release. Product. So you're comfortable yeah. with in a robotics environment. Yeah, and I'll give you an example, right? So um, the uh, sort of computer vision algorithms that you need to be able to understand the environment around you, the mm-hmm. path planning algorithms to be able to navigate it and interact with it, um, human interface, all of those things become tools that if you open up an application that more generally requires you to navigate around a house, you have a much better platform to work off than starting from scratch. And that sort of leapfrog approach is far better than 
just going towards like a 10-year goal because especially in something like robotics that has such huge dependencies on hardware and sensing ecosystems mm -hmm. um, and technological ecosystems, the inability to adapt and quickly iterate and learn, that's a huge handicap if you aren't able to adjust along the way. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost uh, like, uh, you know, you think about, um, you know, the way Apple kind of evolved their products. Um, there's no way a, a company like Apple could have ever released an iPhone as their first product, yeah. but the learnings along the way kind of end up being, mm -hmm. you know, reused in some fashion, even if it's just intuition around the products. And so mm -hmm. in a lot of the same ways, entertainment becomes an early proving ground with elements that don't leave entertainment in a binary fashion, but actually start to create a blur. Um, mm -hmm. For example, companionship, um, something that becomes like a fun companion, maybe for a kid with enough evolution starts to almost become uh, uh, deeper, almost like pet-like um, uh, in terms of companionship and the functions mm -hmm. that could hold and starts to become a welcome you know, kind of member in the, you know, in the home or in the family on which you can then build functional applications. Do you remember Rex all. from Sleeper? Rex from Sleeper? Oh, you got to no. see. It's a Woody Allen oh, movie yeah. called Sleeper. Yeah. And they had a dog named Rex. Yeah. He was a terrible dog. He was, he was, right. Wow. Wow. It was, go see it. It's very funny. It's his it's version of, uh, but the dog was named Rex mm -hmm. um, and it was completely unfun. I think that was his point. So the, where does it go from there though? What happens then? Like, cause you're making again, a game, it's still a game rather than a thing. Yeah. It's still a game, but it becomes uh, kind of the core of a lot of these things, th these things that will transition. And so at some point you end up, uh, you know, imagine the functionality in the home kind of many years down the road. Yeah. You have all of the kind of fixed technologies like, you know, your Nest thermostat and all these other things, right? You mm -hmm. have your voice interfaces, which are important, but right now you're talking to um, static, mm -hmm. uh, you know, static boxes. Right. Um, at some point there are deep functions that require more mobility around the house mm -hmm. and even further interface with objects around the house right. um, uh, in some physical way. I'd say that in English. What does that mean? So uh, being able to manipulate things, being able right. to pick things up, being able to um, start functionally doing things that require kind of motion and interaction with the environment. Right. Um, right. Uh, and, uh, and they've had that with Roomba started with that. Yeah, the Roomba. And, and that's a, a, an app. That was a military application. It's a great example. So a lot of early military funding, but it's mm -hmm. a great a great example where you have like a well-defined enough problem where you can kind of approach it and put a real good dent in it in that focus of a space. Um, mm -hmm. It's probably one of the few kind of mass market kind of, uh, you know, uh, examples where that's worked. What, uh, how long does it take to get to that? Because that's the idea of unloading the dishwasher, putting stuff away, doing yeah. the wash. And I don't think that the first app, you know, we're not, we're not close to the general purpose kind of, you know, cyborg or humanoid in the home. It's just there, there's, there's reasons why that's just impractical in terms of both cost and algorithmic kind of complexity at this mm -hmm. point. But you will start to get to things that uh, if you have a, uh, a baseline, uh, you know, something that can actually interact and exist in the home and navigate, you can start adding things like security or monitoring or other kind of elements like this that are actually really logical evolutions of some. Well, that does exist. And Nest does. You have monitoring but uh, wireless in, a, and in a more mobile fashion as well as uh, meaning things, uh, something so, wandering around the yeah, house. Yeah, so being able to wander around the house, being able to, uh, you know, kind of companionship for, uh, you know, if you have somebody that needs care, like, you know, elderly um, or down the road, other, you know, kind of functions. I mean, the key, uh, the key thing is it's almost like, um, I mean, one way to think about it is almost like your iPhone. The only reason those apps have been so successful is because there's a foundation of a of a platform that you're comfortable being around you at all times. Mm -hmm. You probably wouldn't pay fifty or hundred dollars for a piece of hardware to unlock any of the apps that are currently on your phone. Right. Um, but the fact that you have that baseline opens it up. Right. Um, at some point, robotics will be the same. And part of the problem is that uh, the actual costs of robots is so high that if you had so to talk so about that briefly, what, what do you mean? So what, it's just ex they're expensive. They're expensive. Uh, so. 
sensing is expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have to, you know, there's only so many things you can do with just a pure camera. Um, if you want to do laser-based sensing, all these other types, you know, it becomes mm -hmm. more expensive. Uh, you have to have very precise uh, positioning. So you, you have like accelerometers and gyroscopes, mm -hmm. IMUs and things like that. Um, you have to have a lot of computation um, to be able to process sure. all this information. Uh, you have, to, if you want to do anything that's actually more articulated, um, motors and joints uh, is expensive. And, and it breaks easily. And it breaks easily. And so, uh, and you're also very vulnerable and sensitive because now you put so much complexity into the software side that if anything changes on the hardware side, um, you know, it ends up being, you know, completely throwing off the problem. And so if you want to do something in the home, if the price starts scaling, the functionality better scale pretty quickly with it, um, unless you start having kind of a more of a, you know, other types of uh, of, of fundamental acceptance of, uh, you know, of a platform inside your it's home. So it's a societal acceptance of these things in the home. Yeah. Or if, uh, people are now comfortable with the Echo or the That's right. The and I think the interface is decept deceptively important. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the uh, there, there is going to be a UX for robotics um, mm -hmm. where if you don't have an interface, uh, it's both uh, feels... Um, uh, invasive as well as unfor you're, you're unforgiving of it. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the most valuable things that I think this overlap of uh, animation style, character development mm -hmm. and robotics and game design and a lot of psychology research we're doing is starting to figure out how both kids and adults are comfortable interacting with a character that is totally approachable because the application is entertainment and mm -hmm. and he's almost meant to be this like toddler of a robot so mm -hmm. you know you're naturally even more forgiving because of that um, but in the process there's a lot of learnings that uh, take many years to develop right. and uh, when you do want something that's more functional um, you can't just skip over those, those years of development right so w where do you go from Cosmo then and Anki and then I want to talk about the downsides of robots and why it's mm -hmm. taking so long yeah and so uh, you know with Cosmo um, a lot of the focus is actually to push the complexity as far as possible into the mm -hmm. software side where you can build the most value. Mm -hmm. um, but in the process, we're also iterating on a hardware side. And so there's a long... Yeah, it's got to look like something. Yeah, and there's a long roadmap ahead on it. Um, you know, the, the truth is... is that They always are round. Why is that? They're round and... Uh, as robot. robots? Yeah, well, if you have like a tin box that's just kind of hard edges, it, yeah. uh, it's, it's completely non... Yeah, you want to humanize it to some degree, but you got to be careful. Why you can't, can't it look like humans? Yeah, because you don't want to get into like the uncanny valley where like right. it almost becomes creepy, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of robot examples like this where uh, if you start trying to approach yeah, humans but you don't get there, you end up just having something that's almost like zombie-ish. Well, that uh, yeah. Boston Dynamics video was freaky. Because it walked almost in a realistic... And then it uh, was, like, violent. And then it was, like... And then it was like <laughs> those I are mean robots. It's, uh, those are mean freaking robots. It's, uh, but uh, crazy technology. And then it was headed to your home to kill your children or something like that. <laughs> you know? Kind of looks like the Terminator. huge robot from Star Wars that, like, kind of Well, we're going to talk it, about yeah. the da the ideas yeah. of danger robots kind of thing and what yeah. people feel about it. But so where does it go from there from, with the Cosmo? You, you just iterate it with more functionality and then it Yeah, and I mean, the honest truth better. is that, like, you know, our goal within a few years is to truly have have Cosmo be uh, in contention in a conversation with a pet. Like if you're thinking of getting a pet for uh, oh, you know, wow. for a child, we wanted to have that level of richness in terms of the AI capabilities so and the interface. Like uh, you're trying to replace like, cats. We want to replace cats. Yeah, he'll just sit, he'll sit there on the on the corner <laughs> and watch you suspiciously. And, uh, <laughs> um, but it, oh but in all, but it's uh, it's replace something that um, that level of companionship and then a breadth of functionality across the spectrum of ways you might interface with it and having him be able to always be on and just kind mm -hmm. of exist. Thing in different uh, d different er er types of of, uh, uh, of state, 
if that happens and we're starting to kind of poke into those mm -hmm. areas that start to become a foundation for deeper things. Right. And it's a smooth evolution because to make uh, to make Cosmo not something that you just turn on and play with for 15 minutes and then turn off yeah, because it's like a thing. video game to something like this, it's a pretty- so it's uh, a constant presence. Yeah, it? and, and this pushes incredibly hard on both hardware as well as uh, software sure. evolution. So there's these AI challenges that the overlap of character AI and functional AI, nobody's ever done these sort of things before in a kind of mass market form. Right. And so these are challenging that the overlaps of a lot of different expertise. So it's easy to make a factory robot, right? It's easier uh, in some sense because you have a uh, have much certain, much looser price constraints. Things, yeah. Well, and in some sense, like those factory robots right now, uh, they have no, few, little AI in them because mm -hmm. they're just executing kind of uh, repetitive, repetitive tasks. They just yeah. have to do it precisely. So it's a hard controls problem. But in terms of AI, uh, most of them don't have any sensing. They're just blindly executing motions. All right. In our next yeah. section, we're going to talk about this and also what people are worried about. There's a lot of people who are super worried about robots and job taking, from job yeah. taking to just terrifying, and we'll talk about that soon. I also want to tell you about Too Embarrassed to Ask, my other podcasts, like my other wife, which I host with Lauren Good of The Verge. Uh, hey, Kara, we're down at Code Conference. We're all waiting for you. Where yeah, are I, you? <laughs> I'm coming soon. Are you, you're due on stage in yeah, 15 minutes. I'll do just fine. 15 years hence. Every Friday, we answer all of your questions about consumer tech on this show. <laughs> Lauren, what did we talk about last week? You suddenly got so serious. I know I did. I just decided to change my voice. I'm practicing on voice things. We talked about podcasts with Liz Gaines from 60DB, yes. a new podcasting app that you should check out. It was a very meta podcast, it was a meta, if you about will. Podcasts. It was about podcasts. Really good suggestions about things to watch out for in podcasts, trends, which yeah. ones to listen to. Absolutely. It's a burgeoning area. And we took a lot of suggestions from from our readers and listeners who we take feedback from every week, every week and incorporate into the show. And we took a lot of great suggestions from them about podcasts that we should all be listening to Absolutely. right now. Absolutely, and some of our own too. Anyway, it was a great discussion and we hope you'll go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on all Apple Podcasts. I'm doing a different voice, Lauren. Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts on the Vox Media Podcast Network. See you there. Good night and good luck. <laughs> We're here with Boris Softman, who is the CEO and founder of Anki, which is a robotics company. They started out with a car game, essentially, and now have a robot. And we're just talking about where robotics are going. Um, it's gotten in the news lately a lot. Uh, Mark Cuban's been talking about the idea of how China's way ahead of us. And it's not just robot, it's drones and combined with AI. And all of it spells trouble for a lot of people. They feel worried about it. Obviously, in the popular culture, there's lots of friendly robots. But a lot of the stories of robots are malevolent. And they're Terminator. I mean, you can you can think of... One weaponized yeah. Science termination. fiction doesn't Science. do us any favors. Yeah. No, not at all. Although there's a door, you know, three it's three CPO between that and, and the Terminator. Arnold, yeah. Arnold, like yeah. that's it. Like that's the kind of thing. And and a lot of and now recently on television, there's been a ton of robotic, like cyborg kind of things, and right. they're very disturbing shows. Like the Humans is one which I found super disturbing. And there's a lot of abuse, robot abuse, and all kind. And do they have rights and all that kind of stuff? Let's talk about where that's going. Do, is that just fake, or do you, is that things we really should be thinking about going forward? Uh, I, I wouldn't call it fake. Mm -hmm. um, I think I mean these are uh, these are the right questions. I'll give you an opinion about kind of the state where mm -hmm. we are today and how mm -hmm. far away we are from something like that. Um, right. My uh, personal take on it, and I think this matches most people that are really deeply in the space, is that we're we're super super far away from anything that resembles true like end to end. Uh, AI where mm -hmm. ro robots get self intentions and, and, and feelings and, and kind of rise up against us. Mm -hmm. That so uh, it's you say no, I'm sorry. Yeah, so it's like yeah, it's it, yeah. Little Cosmo is going to come in. Yeah, uh, but 
you know, and that's because like almost any sort of AI that is currently programmed today is uh, uh, it's an optimization problem. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, literally, it's uh, programmers and scientists structuring a problem, trying to represent it in software, mm-hmm. and trying to give uh, a machine and uh, you know something to optimize mm-hmm. to that tends to correlate with intelligence. And so, mm-hmm. an autonomous car driving on a road. Um, whether it uh, you know decides to you know wh- whether it drives well or makes mm-hmm. a mistake or accidentally kills someone or intentionally kills someone, right. that's not up to the robot. That's a that's a programmer's intention. And so if something goes wrong, it's because a sensor malfunctioned or software wasn't good enough or the circumstances were not something that it could handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and as difficult and complex as that problem is, an autonomous car can't play checkers. Right. Um, and so uh, general kind of full AI. Does anybody want to play checkers anymore? But go ahead. Uh, in, <laughs> And so, or same, you know, and same thing with like, you know, kind of right. these machines that are optimized for chess or Go, right. they're optimized for a particular problem. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the, the bigger challenge uh, and kind of risk in the near near and medium term is probably not so much robots rising up, but it's people misusing robots. So mm-hmm. it's people using robotics for military purposes where right. uh, it's still human driven, but it just becomes a, a, you know, a dangerous tool that right. like, drones uh, you know, that opens up. Exactly. Um, it's not that drones inherently come a to life. It's that people warriors, are controlling them. Robot warriors. Exactly. And so um, from that respect, it just becomes a dangerous tool, just like other a types of technologies or a gun or and there needs to be, you know, kind of careful thought on, you know, how we regulate and how what sort of approaches or safety standards we put on them. But an autonomous car that kills somebody is never because of malicious intent by a mm-hmm. robot. It's truly just a program that didn't handle. It's just like your phone crashing, an app right. crashing, right? It's right. Th- that happens. It's just the consequences are bigger when you, when so you think about robots. you're saying the opposite is what humans do to robots. Uh, yes, and how they use robots. Um, right. And so, uh, you know, in the long, long, long term, obviously, you know, n- nobody here is uh, like, I- I'm not qualified to speak about where, what AI is going to do in the next in 100 years. But in the near term, all of the concerns are more about the use cases of AI and robotics as tools. Um, but right now, they're fully human defined. Why are people so scared? Lately, everyone's terrified about AI, the idea that, you know, I was at a speech in Nantucket at some some conference. This guy was talking about super AI and how it's getting smarter and smarter, and now it's like a dolphin, and then in five years it's going to be like and a deep super... learning. Just sounds mischievous too. It right? does. Yeah. It does. It seems it feels terrible. Yeah. I think really, I hate yeah. to say, it, but James Cameron had a big effect on people. Is the idea yeah. that that or you look at a movie more benign like her, like they just yeah. get smarter than us. They just move beyond humanity. And a lot of this is cultural. I mean, you go to Japan, and there's actually a far better uh, connection uh, acceptance of robotics because right. they don't have that Terminator, uh, right. um, you know, kind of in, uh, thought ingrained in there. Right. In their minds, and so a lot of this really is cultural, and um, and part of it is people are afraid because uh, you know, when you have something that you seemingly don't have control over, it's scary. Um, no matter how uh, reliable people will say autonomous cars are, and how many studies will prove it. People will be very nervous, especially early on driving them, the same way people are still mm-hmm. nervous about flying, no matter how mm-hmm. many statistics. Then you get very comfortable sure. very quickly. I remember Chris took me in his car, and I got comfortable. In That's right. Second. It's a, uh, um, and I mean, but then there's people that are still to this day uh, scared of flying, even though statistically it's far safer to fly yeah. than to drive. Um, right. And so uh, when you, um, you know, when you get, when you even when you get to a point where technologically we've like solve to a reasonable level the problem of autonomous driving, mm-hmm. there would be huge barriers in just human psychology and uh, and regulatory environment in order to get that over that but finish line. But what about where AI is going? And there's so much investment being made by, especially by Google yep. and Facebook. I think mm-hmm. those are the two leaders in that area. What what should people be thinking of as we're moving into this? And, you know, Google bought deep minds. Facebook's been doing a lot yeah. of, what should, I mean, because a lot of people feel like input, it's the same, mostly men, mostly white men, 
creating these things, what should be, we be thinking of as we're moving into a deep learning? What, yeah. is the, what are the important key things? Yeah, or is anybody thinking at all? I think people are thinking about it, and, I, and I, uh, you know, there have been kind of uh, um, you know agencies and so forth thinking about mm -hmm. the ethics around robotics. I think it's very case specific. So one of the reasons entertainment is great is that uh, nobody's intimidated by the the, the products we make. So mm -hmm. we're kind of bypassing a lot of this these challenges mm -hmm. on our on our way to something uh, something else. In the case of something like uh, AI being used for medical applications, at some point there will be. Uh, you know, computer programs that can diagnose, uh, you know, X-rays and, uh, oh, and and you know, read te do, test right? results and so forth. Exactly, and, better than doctors. And better than so doctors job in a lot of cases. Is another thing. Well, uh, so but even before you get to job losing, like you know, there's gonna like. There's a danger in somebody proclaiming that this is a better solution than humans until there's a true. Um, it probably uh, is, isn't like, it? Like you know, not always. I mean, you got to get to that point because Don't you think um, it probably will be. It, it probably will be. Yeah. Um, but uh, for example, there's a lot of autonomous cars that are currently being tested on the road that are, are scarily not qualified to be right. fully autonomous, right? right. And so you got to be careful about that. You know, one thought that I heard that kind of resonated well is that it'll be almost like at some point government's going to have to be involved to, in order to green light and accept the risks for the betterment of society of some of these technologies. So the same way Are that... Are they qualified to do that? Well, they, like they, they there needs to be a partnership to get qualified because there's no other way. So for example, right. like FDA um, and kind of, you know, these administrations that have to like vet kind of drugs and safety... By no means are they perfect, but there's kind of, uh, you know, or uh, CDC or whatnot. So you, you have a vaccine that, that can save lives. There's side effects. But once you pass kind of a general accepted mm -hmm. bar of safety, the, the good outweighs the bad. Right. Um, and it will be the same thing for autonomous cars. And that it can't be like 17 companies fighting for their own arbitrary metrics of what's accepted. There has to be some standardized. But is the government qualified? I mean, I Trump doesn't have any science people. I think there's two people and one of them does the Xeroxing at this so, point. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so different branches of government, right? And so, you know, to some degree, there's a long way to go. But um, who uh, is key in that? The Department uh, so of Transportation? Like it'll probably be Department of Transportation. And there's a, right. you know, there's a few folks, um, you know, within the kind of deeper branches of government. There's actually some good examples of folks that have uh, cross-pollinated from academics and, mm -hmm. you know, where you have qualified people coming in and like really thinking about these challenges. And there's a genuine intent to try to, you know, solve these problems. Because you think about, say, these infrastructure stuff. They, yeah. they should be thinking about sensors in the roads, Well, correct? that's right. So Because uh, you're not going to have self-driving cars unless you have sensors in the Well, it's road. kind of like a chicken and the egg problem, right? Because right. it's, uh, you know, the reason the internet took off is the phone lines were already there. Right. Um, so... Uh, oh, no, you have to have sensors in the roads, um, right? I just don't... Uh, well, the, the... You have to be thinking about yeah, what The you alternative need. that most a lot of these companies are approaching is uh, collecting ahead of time really dense data around the environment yeah, to be able to facilitate it. Uh, it, it change, but uh, some things don't change. So like the side of the road, the you know, right. traffic lights and things like that. And mm -hmm. so, you know, you use that as a tool to localize yeah. and to understand where you're going. But the worst case, you'll never have an instantaneous transition from autonomous from non-autonomous to autonomous mm -hmm. and so you have to handle the worst case which is you have a mixture of autonomous cars with non-autonous cars right. but yes um, if like time. if um, some state or city decides to make a deep investment um, to spend billions of dollars uh, outfitting itself to be autonomous friendly to be a proof case um, for their own benefit and the benefit of the rest of the country um, that'll be a great thing because some mm -hmm. of these technologies could legitimately help right. um, and there'll be places that are greenlit or not and uh, and there's a lot of debate on how that would play out right. as well. But is there the, you know, there was always the courage around the moon programs, the courage around the internet programs. Is there that courage right now in government? Since it's like they never, can't agree on lunch, so. Yeah, uh, 
I would say it's a little bit chaotic right now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so um, there are certainly people within that are deeply trying to push this, but there's only so much you can do um, right. without. But it's got to be a government thing. Yeah. It's like phone lines. It's got to like... be. At some point, the government has to be involved because otherwise it would just be chaos. What do you yeah. think? Mark Cuban's recently written about this, saying China and other countries are pushing these robotics and AI stuff quite hard, and this is something that our government should get behind. I completely agree, frankly. And, the, yeah. and there's there's pockets where they've gone very, very aggressively. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, and you know, for, for good effect, I mean, there were just uh, really large investments investments in trying to, um, in research funding for automating manufacturing, um, manipulation, kind of robotics mm-hmm. uh, arms and uh, mm-hmm. being able to manipulate things. That research is probably, you know, roughly around where autonomous driving was like 10 right. years ago. So right. so there's areas that are gigantically meaningful. And mm-hmm. uh, he's right. If the U.S. were able to invest and try to reinvent manufacturing to where you could turn it into an AI problem and increase the library of things that could be done in an autonomous fashion, that's world changing. Because the reason manufacturing is in China, um, I mean, one, they've developed an expertise there that actually, it's not just labor, it's expertise as well. They're better than mm-hmm. uh, logistics, um, you know, and, and logistics, but just the techniques and technologies to do it. Um, that's a skill set. Um, but yes, they also have the labor advantage. If you can increase the level of things that can be automated, you knock out the um, labor advantage, suddenly that becomes a competitive, competitive playing field. Competitive playing field, yeah. right, absolutely. So when you think about that idea of, of making investments in robotics, who are key players? I mean, Amazon bought Kiva. There's mm-hmm. all kinds well, of interest. It's a beautiful interest. company, yeah. It is. I yeah. Was, One of my favorite applications of robotics ever. Uh, yeah. I I think people don't pay enough attention to that purchase. I oh, think you're going to see Amazon. Yeah. See, I was thinking they would create, instead of Amazon Web Services, where everybody's catching up to them now, they could do Amazon Logistics Services, and that's ALS and sounds like a disease. So, um, But think about it. <laughs> Didn't think about that one yet. Then uh, Amazon Robotic Services, that's a little creepy. So, but, I mean, it's such a yeah. – that purchase is one of the most brilliant purchases. Explain I, that. I, Kiva is – So Kiva Systems is a warehouse management mm-hmm. um, robotics company. So mm-hmm. they were started in Boston, uh, and I actually first encountered them at a conference back in, like, you know, 2006. And so what they basically uh, were doing at that time is they had this um, robot that's about the size of, um, you know, maybe like three, you know, two feet, three feet wide, kind of this uh, kind of a, a zoomed up Roomba, I guess, is a way to mm-hmm. think about it. And it has a platform at the top that's meant to dock with shelves that contain items in a warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, what this uh, what their system does is if you equip your warehouse with the Kiva system, uh, system which involves robots and, sure, and the shelves and an inventory management system around it, um, you can basically have hundreds of these robots running like an ant farm where you have a checkout counter and somebody places an order that includes seven of these widgets, two of these widgets, and five of those mm-hmm. widgets, and the robots automatically get the shelves and line them up at the checkout line, mm-hmm. and you're ready to just kind of uh, mm-hmm. fulfill that order. And so what they did that was brilliant is that the overall fulfillment process is incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. Um, navigating and finding objects is a Data, uh, it's a database problem with mm-hmm. a physical incarnation, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and navigation is can be well understood. And especially if you structure the environment, meaning it doesn't have any humans and you use shelves that you recognize mm-hmm. with a system that you created, um, it makes it easier. The hard part is still picking things and packing things. Right. And so the, but it's not that time consuming. And so they solved like the part that takes 90% of the time, time the but humans. is like 10% of the complexity right. um, and left humans to do the, the rest. And what's interesting is that uh, I was, I'm actually super excited because I, I got uh, to tour one of the Amazon facilities um, mm-hmm. uh, recently, and it's just uh, it's it's beautiful to see these things at work. Um, mm-hmm. And 
you know, the, 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 the things that, what it, what it actually opens up is in the process of automating these things, you can actually be far denser in terms of how you can pack, sure. um, you know, the, uh, um, the warehouse itself mm-hmm. and you increase kind of y- the yield um, of, uh, no, of the No, it's own. brilliant. I think people it's are wonderful. nearly. And so Amazon bought them for, I think it was like $800 million yeah, plus or minus or so, which is, um, and then they pulled honestly, all the, now steal. they're doing it like, just for themselves. That's right. Because they were, now. they were working with um, Staples and yeah, uh, all now. these other companies and, um, and when you think about this as a way to automate fulfillment in, in the general case and just how much uniquely valuable that is to Amazon, where mm-hmm. if that gives them a unique advantage in terms of mm-hmm. cost and speed and efficiency of fulfillment, because yeah. the other thing it does is it like reoptimizes the locations sure. and stuff. Um, it, it just adds to the advantage that they have that yeah, creates. You're not going to buy anything except like for that, Amazon. Like in the future, th- that moat is an ocean at this point, yeah. right? It's just it's uh, uh, it, it gets harder and harder, and yeah. so it's brilliant because uh, it's just a beautiful use case of robotics that like solved the problem. And and in the end, um, it gives them advantage. It gives them, it gives them a big, big yeah, advantage. Yeah, I was talking to someone from Walmart, and I was like, "You're so dumb about Kiva was the smartest." And they're like, "Huh?" And I'm like, "Oh, forget it. Just yeah, give up. Just that's amazing. <laughs> give up right now, immediately." And yesterday. they're investing, and then they're investing a ton in robotics. It's yeah. actually, I yeah, mean, it's fascinating. Yeah, well, I mean. Jeff loves that stuff. Yeah, he always has. And it's uh, and it's smart because mm-hmm. um, they're finally at a scale where you can truly rethink kind of the end-to-end system. Sure. Just, and who I'm else? In, is I'm amazed good? by Google. The yeah. Google, um, Google had uh, had a lot of uh, early. So event. they had the autonomous car company, but then they had a lot of other robotics companies. But they were kind yeah. of like scattered and yeah. mismatched. And um, there's like Boston Dynamics that didn't. What's really... What's going to happen to that? I mean, some of them. Uh, I can't remember. I think Boston Dynamics. Got... Why do they want to sell it? From um, your perspective. I think that uh, I mean, all their contracts were military contracts, which mm-hmm. I think isn't kind of at odds with uh, mm-hmm. what Google wanted to focus on. And um, uh, I mean, my, my guess is that it was hard to um, find a clear path um, from a lot of those technologies into something that's commercializable in the near Who's term. Who's going to buy that company? Um, uh, maybe defense, uh, or maybe it spins back out and uh, right. um, you know, Doesn't kind of matter. recapitalizes somehow. Yeah. And then who uh, else is is what, what do you think of Uber's efforts, and then the car companies' efforts or Tesla's? Yeah. So uh, this is interesting. I mean, a, a ta- the transportation industry is kind of a, a you know a, a, a good parallel where robotics is not an industry. Robotics is like this tool that sh- reshapes different industries. So it's almost like the internet. Like you don't mm-hmm. call internet an industry. It's mm-hmm. just a new technology where right. every industry has to rethink how they operate. Right. And if they don't, they can get left behind. Um, and so in the case of transportation, um, a lot of car companies are certainly involved, but what would, most would consider the front runners are the software companies from Silicon sure. Valley, right? right? And so it's not a you know, coincidence, it's just different DNA in mm-hmm. some sense, similar to how uh, the sort of products we make, you would never, it would be, be hard to imagine kind of traditional toy companies uh, you know, right. coming up with those sort of products. And so, um, yeah, and so you have uh, uh, Tesla, you have um, you know, Google, Uber. Uber, and so forth, um, uh, and uh, uh, and then some of the new companies are starting up as well, uh, you know, some of which are- uh, Yeah, you know, crew. The, the Cruise got sold, mm-hmm. and then Chris's has a company. I forget the name of it. Um, how do you assess what's going on? Uber? They've had a lot of troubles, though, with integrating the Carnegie Mellon Group with the group from the auto. Yeah, it's tough, and uh, I mean, certainly some pu- public controversies. I guess I'm not. Yeah. I, I'm not in a good position yeah, to kind of comment on those, but uh, um, but it's tough. That's I mean, big people being humans. But go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> they should act like robots. And, you know, the other thing is, it's. Um, I mean, these are also sometimes difficult projects to have uh, separated because uh, you know it's hard enough to. There's a reason why kind of teams are often in, in one location because mm-hmm. you know cultural reason, communication, and so forth. Robotics is even tougher because there's such. You really huge, have to work together. Yeah, and it's R and D through the final launch. It never mm-hmm. stops being R and D. So right. that. Makes a little bit more challenging. Who else um, is someone we haven't heard of that's been great? What about the car companies? Do you think they're really committed to this? Yeah. Well, uh, spending it, money an, on it. it. It's an existential threat for some of them. And so they're certainly committed. The problem is, is that, um, 
you know, you almost saw the sort of an arms race back when apps first became big and there weren't enough app developers. The, mm-hmm. the, the difference is, is that somebody that's a really good developer could spend six months becoming a, a pretty reasonable app developer. For something like robotics, um, you truly need like at least like a half decade of experience of working with physical mm-hmm. projects and problems and dealing with the like uncertainty of the real world. It's just it really builds an intuition that like you can't just like you know, immediately think that you can absorb. Mm -hmm. And so there's just a gigantic shortage of talent at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, there's uh, almost any other, every car company would gladly spend billions of dollars investing in this given the value in the future. Mm -hmm. But there's only a handful of full-fledged teams that are available to be able to actually Mm -hmm. do this. Anyone we haven't heard of that you think is... Uh, so uh, I'm a big fan of Chris's. Uh, mm-hmm. So you've uh, obviously yeah, we've uh, you know, written about know about Chris. Uh, so I think uh, you know he's fantastic. Um, I mean Google, uh, it's having that sort of a big lead. Um, mm-hmm. I mean obviously you know there's challenges with like kind of keeping some of this talent, but uh, it's still a pretty big lead where um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of value in kind of the technology that they have. Mm-hmm. I mean I think you know kind of the major ones, and then uh, of course there's the rumors about Apple um, mm-hmm. always. But uh, um, but uh, where are they? They seem out to lunch at this point. Yeah, uh, I mean. There, and uh, Tesla, and and Tesla, and, and Tesla is an interesting one because um, they've, uh, you know, it's uh, there's different levels of autonomy, but um, you know they have by far the most actually commercially available autonomous miles out there, mm-hmm. which is some, you know, says yeah. something. And so, um, but again, it's far, you know, really really hard to go from you know, highway in some sense is the best application of autonomous mm-hmm. driving uh, uh, easiest it because it's structured um, a highway in yeah. the desert is actually uh, bad, yeah right? and the highway yeah <laughs> and like, but, but any sucks. highway it's like you know you have very well-defined lines mm-hmm. traffic flow everything um the hardest part is urban environments where you have like dogs running in the street where and you people need and like uh cr- people crossing randomly in front of you and so, so forth. Yeah. two more questions and we'll finish up when is there going to be a fully robotic autonomous city is there a city that should do that Oh, it's well, San Francisco. Meaning like a, for driving. Yeah, for everything. Like For everything. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's not, uh, but it's not like an instantaneous transformation right. because it's just going to be a gonna huge be flow. It's almost like when computers came out, there was never like, we're still in the process of stuff being impacted by computers right. and internet and stuff. So it'll be very gradual. Like in some sense, like robotics is one of the biggest revolutions to, that's going to, you know, that's in the earliest stages of hitting, mm-hmm. you know, kind of humanity where you saw with computers, you saw with the internet, you, mm-hmm. you know, you'll see it with robotics, but it'll be a little bit slower and gradual because so there's constraints. Will it be cars or robotic helpers or drones first? Cars will be first. Yeah. Will be first. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, because um, at this point, um, you know, it is, uh, there's already kind of a foundation f- for it. Um, and uh, even though the problem's not definitely not solved yet, there's work on the sensor side as well, but there's a better understanding of the software that mm-hmm. needs to happen. Something like a helper, um, you know, again, it's cost, it's capability, it's all the kind of mm-hmm. mechanical components and so forth. That's still kind of a long ways off. Drones is very multidimensional. So uh, drones started as entertainment. Um, then mm-hmm. uh, um, Possible uh, delivery. Yeah, you know, possible delivery. There's uh, uses of them for Military. surveying. Uh, farms surveying, uh, you know, know, roofs for insurance purposes, Uh, you know, Amazon, obviously, you know, with delivery and so forth. And so dropping medicine in Africa, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of really great kind of applications Mm -hmm. are going to be widespread, but it's not like suddenly drones are in, it's what applications of drones. Mm -hmm. And and so the same thing is going to happen with different forms of robotics, where I think we're still far away from kind of the full iRobot humanoid, uh, you know, the movie Mm -hmm. iRobot humanoid. Um, But it's almost kind of, 
I mean, one of the best phrases I've heard of is like, you know, stuff's AI until it starts working. And now you, yeah. call, it, you call it voice and recognition, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and That's you call it like plan, right? So the moment it actually starts to kind of function in a realistic way, it kind of gets a name and it's not AI anymore. Right. Like a lot of stuff that we call different things used to be AI. And so I yeah. think it's going to be kind of like that. Yeah. AI. What did they want to call it? Someone was telling me who was going on it, who was someone, a very prominent AI person was like, you know, the human brain is the smartest you know, the most complex thing that we oh, have. No don't doubt. even understand how Oh, it we was. can't, we can't even like, it, you, you, anybody who's we, seen like a two-year-old, like kind of what, it's just it's yeah, crazy. You yeah. can't teach it. It was interesting. Yeah. Like, don't be so scared the human brain is. I'm like, yeah, but then it's like, yeah. attached to a human. Yeah. And it's the thing is just even deep learning, it's not really the human brain that's replicating. Right. It's just, it's better tools for understanding gigantic visual, sets of data. Just the visual yeah. stuff. That well, it, or whatever purpose it's applied to. It's just when you have tons of data, it's better tools for like, finding the pattern right. within that data. And now it's almost like this, you know, we have this hammer, okay, can we help with financial uh, challenges, healthcare challenges, uh, com you know, uh, yeah. computer vision. And some of these work well, some of these won't work well, but it becomes a tool. All uh, right, last question. What would you like to be the most crazy example of a robotic thing would you like to have be invented? Oh, wow, uh, the craziest robotic thing. I want a time machine, but that's different. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, honestly, it's, uh, Gosh, sports! I think that'd be pretty awesome so to have kind of like, yeah, just like robot, that was a movie. yeah, or just like yeah, ro tennis, football. Just like can you imagine kind of like the sort of competitions you could have with like full fledged and like, nobody kind of gets hurt. Yeah, and just uh, like everything under the sun. That'd be kind of cool. All um, right, yeah, All that's right. even well, harder than the other stuff. We well, talked get about. on it, yeah. get on it. All right, yeah. thank you so much, Boris. This has been fascinating. Thanks for coming by. Thank we you, Carol. My pleasure. Uh, my kids love your, your race car thing, by the way. Oh, thank I you. Not, I haven't gotten them the robot yet. Oh, they love that one. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not so uh. sure. They like skateboards still. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Internet Archive Chairman Bruce Jacale, technology journalist John Markoff, and Mr. Robot creator Sam Esmael, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Two Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, the company that distributes our show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. <laughs>